0: So, fellow travellers, we lift up our chalice flame this morning, this worldwide symbol of our liberal religious faith. We lift this chalice flame for the challenges of life. I wonder if there are some words that immediately come to us when we think of the challenges of life.
1: Exhaustion, (laughs) children,
0: mothers, mothers, get them all in, fathers. Think of your own life, or perhaps someone dear to you. My prayer this morning would be as we explore life and its challenges, that we also find bits of wisdom along the way. And a loving household that can help those three. May I have a use yours thing? Do you have that thing when certain hymns just really touch a chord? And sometimes I think it's actually because of the chords. I know people who know more about music than I do who say that sometimes it's actually how notes are put together that resonates in a particular way with our emotional selves, even our physical selves perhaps. I know when I first heard today's hymn that we're going to sing, What Wondrous Love, it touched me in that kind of way. And then I was walking and talking with Linda and she told me something, which I know you've told some people already. Here. Is it not this no, one? Oh, not. Is, this, is this the same thing? It is. All right. <laughs> hear, hear this, because when I heard this, this is about notes. And when I heard this, I thought, oh, that's why it is. That's the way it does. Um, those of you who were in
2: the um, hymn sing the other night um, may find this uh, a bit tedious, hopefully not so much. Um, I have a great love of knowing about um, the songs that we sing. And this song comes out of the American um, shape note, S-H-A-P-E, shape note tradition, which uh, was around in the 19th century primarily. Um, In country churches, people didn't read music. Um, And the way that they started noting music as they began to develop their hymn tradition in the US was that they would draw different shapes that indicated the different notes. Do, re, mi, fa, so, la, ti, do. And each shape, would indicate which song you sang. And when they came to sing hymns together, they would come into a room and they would set all the benches so that they faced into the center, four sides for the four parts. And the choir master would come into the center and would start the beat, call the tune, and start the beat. And everyone would begin in their own part, singing towards one another, just the, the words of the notes the first time through and then would um, join in on the words. And this tradition continues on in the United States today. It's not widely um, practiced. um, But it is one of the most amazing things to step into um, a group of people who are doing this kind of singing. um, I I understand that I'm not musical. uh, I'm enthusiastic, but not not, uh, really well versed in it. But I understand the tunes are modal, which sounds to those of us who don't have trained ears, as a minor key. <clears throat> so it's it's kind of mournful and lilting, and um, and I encourage you to step into it. But unfortunately, we don't have the um, the harmonies writ, um, and we don't have any gray hymn books around, do we? Really. So, but listen for the in the music for the for the harmonies because they really are quite lilting and haunting. I apologize for interrupting this
0: virgin just, no, let's just sing the words. What wondrous love, number 18. Of the lectern. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and so we have, well, Linda has two stories today that feed in in different ways into this theme of ours.
2: I want to um, just say that if, um, if you want uh, copies of the stories written, the stories written now, I'm really happy to provide them to those of you who would like them. I'm going to put a sign up sheet. If you have an email address, that would be brilliant. If not, just a, a, a postal address, and I'll send it, send them to you. And I'll also give you um, the reference. They, most of these, I think, perhaps all of them, come from a single site that has just a huge compendium of stories that is um, that I'm, well. I'm, I'm happy to share um, with you the stories today. The first story today is um, from the Buddhist tradition, and it's a story about two monks who went traveling. Kind of like we travel this week. They had a great distance to go, and it was a master and a student who walked along together. And as they walked along, sometimes they would simply go in silence and watch the countryside unfold around them. And sometimes they would take out their beads, and fingering them, they would chant as they walked along, deeply rooted into their center as they walked. And on one day, as they went along through an area that was just filled with rice paddies, and as they walked along a very narrow path through the rice paddies, imagine it, if you will, the green fields spreading out as far as the eye could see in either direction, people working patiently in the afternoon sun. And these two monks walking along quietly with one another in companionable silence. As they walked this narrow, narrow track through the rice paddies, they could hear behind them the clatter of a horse and cart coming at a great speed. They moved themselves over (coughs) towards the side of the road, certain that the driver would slow down at any moment and drive past slowly so that they would not be thrown from the road. But the sound continued, the clatter of horses running faster and faster rather than slower. As the cart came right up upon them, they did indeed have to leap off the road and into the water in order to save their lives as the horse raced past. The student leapt back onto the road, ran after the horses, shaking his fist at them. How dare you? How dare you? You nearly killed us! And he turned around, furious, and began walking back to his master, who had climbed quietly out of the ditch that he had found himself in, and was simply standing in the road, his hands out and his heart open. And he was calling after the man, May your life be filled with blessings, and may you know love. And again, may your life be filled with blessings, and may you know love. And the student came back to him, and he was, he was still enraged. He said, how can you say that? He nearly killed us. How can you say that? And The master, again, in all compassion, and love, turned to the student and said, had his life been filled with blessings and had he no love, he would never have been able to run us off the road. May it be that his life is full of blessings, and may he no love. Indeed, may it be true for all of us. The second story I want to tell is out of the African tradition. It's an Anansi story. Do do, do folks know Anansi? The trickster spider, uh, the one who's always getting into difficult places. Not any of us have that experience, I suspect, but we'll try it anyhow. So this is back at the very beginnings of the world when things were still kind of being formed. And Anansi, wandering around this new place for the first time discovered an enormous pot. On the outside of the pot was written the word wisdom. In fact, this was the pot of all the wisdom in the world. Hadn't yet sorted out what to do with all the wisdom in the world, so it was sitting here in this pot. And Anansi really liked the whole thought having all the wisdom in the world to himself, so he picked up the pot and carried it off. He didn't quite know what to do with it once he had it, so he thought probably the best thing was to hide it someplace, someplace where no one else would ever find it. And so he went off into the forest, and off in the forest he found the tallest tree he could The one that would be most difficult to climb because he didn't want anyone else to get up there. And of course, being a spider with all those legs, he thought he would always be able to get up to it. And so he began to climb this tallest tree. And and it's difficult to climb a tall tree when you have a pot in your arms. Even if you do have six other legs that can help you get up. So he was having quite a difficult time climbing, uh, just getting up a little ways and then slipping back and up a little ways. And in the midst of this, his son came along and watched his father for a while, climbing the tree. And he'd, he'd call out to him every now and again. He'd say, "Father, father, the branch over here. No, no, over there. Oh, over there. That that would be the best branch. To, no, no, over there, Dad." Dad, do you have anyone in your life like this? (laughs) Perhaps, perhaps not. So it. would turn as much as he could turn, because he was really having a lot of trouble holding on. He would turn and he would say, Stop! I don't need your advice! And he'd continue to cry. But the son wouldn't listen. Do you have anyone in your life like that? (laughs) Occasionally, Maybe. Perhaps you are the person in your life like that. <laughs> <laughs> Anyhow, so uh, he would he would call back to him. Stop it! Don't want to hear your advice. And he would continue to try his son. Dad Dad over that over that uh, This went on. For some time and Anonce was yelling louder and louder back at his son and finally, at his wit's end, done with it all, he took the pot, furious, and flung it down at his son. And it shattered. And all the wisdom spread out across the wide world, little bits and fragments here, there, seated all throughout the world. And that is why today, We find wisdom as we go out through the wide world. Little bits here, little bits there. Some inside of us, some on the road. Little bits of wisdom scattered throughout the universe for us all to find. And we can thank Anansi for that.
0: (laughs) Thank you, Linda. The summer school is run by a panel, and They put so much effort into running this week. No expenses spared. And because of that no expenses spared attitude, we actually have a replica, well, it's a tiny replica of Anansi's pot of wisdom today. And so as we're going to practice again our... You're going to be the kind of distributor of those. As we're going to practice our Let Our Little Light Shine, which I'm pleased to see is really building up this week, uh, <laughs> young people are going to distribute wisdom to all of you, and you'll be able to take that with you for your journey. And you remember where that chant is, it's on the back of your front <coughs> seat. <laughs> Yesterday we progressed to tapping our feet and clicking of fingers and general swaying of the hips. You You have a choice today. You can stand up if you like. You can do more general jiggling around. You can even start to experiment with what happens if you you cease to follow both the words and the notes. <laughs>
1: Somebody warns me it was a bit early
0: Wednesday to start trying this, but you know it's a marvelous tune for doing this too. So let's play with. Let your little light shine, shine,
1: shine. Let your little light shine, oh my Lord, a baby. Shut up! <laughs> 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 Second number was <always>. Change. 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 You have
0: a color to you Okay. Oh, sorry about that. Let's all hum gently as the young people go for their program. <laughs> <laughs> a da 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 da
1: da 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 do da 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 do da do da 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 da
0: So, we have the smell of burning hair (laughs) to remind us, as our first challenge, and as a reminder always of the need to be careful with flames. To be a pilgrim, be it as a metaphor or in the realms of reality, is at some point to cross that threshold from the known to the unknown world. Even if one has really, really enjoyed the company of others up until this point, crossing of thresholds is generally done alone. In classic esoteric texts and systems of mystical training, each threshold that has to be crossed has a guardian that needs to be won over or appeased, or who will test you, the initiate, in some way. Perhaps with a riddle to be solved, a question to be answered. Now some might say that the guardian is a symbol of our own fears and the limitations of our ego, keeping us from inner exploring, from stepping into the unknown. Another view of the guardian takes a more health and safety perspective. (laughs) Very useful today. That it is better not to stray into unknown territory unless one is sufficiently well equipped for the journey and the trials that lie ahead. The German poet Navalis describes this crossing point when he writes that the seat of the soul is there where the inner and the outer worlds meet. And indeed, I think it is soul work that we're engaging with on this journey within. Any of us who's ever had a dream and remembered it has some idea of this inner realm with its shifting boundaries and images. Joseph Campbell, in his key work on on mythology, The Hero with a Thousand Faces, explains that once having traversed the threshold, the hero moves in a dream landscape of curiously fluid, ambiguous forms where he must survive a succession of trials. In this stage of trial and initiation, crossing the threshold, well, that's merely the beginning. In real life, have you ever been lost? Literally, not known your way. As a life experience, being lost can span from an amusing experience in a foreign land to a time of absolute life-threatening terror. And to be lost can also describe the fragmentation that Rob referred to yesterday, when we sometimes ex- that we sometimes experience when those old labels and identities no longer seem quite to fit us anymore, when masks slip and we've no real idea who the face behind the mask now represents. But in a strange world where we cannot read the signs and find ourselves uncertain how best to progress, well still I believe there is assistance to be found. A shaman will generally work with allies when journeying in spiritual realms And these allies, often in animal form, bring their own wisdom and their unique perspective to the challenges that are to be faced. They are good, those animal allies, at looking for clues, solving those tests and riddles. Indeed, there's a classic shamanic practice when facing a dilemma in the everyday world, and that is to sit quietly in nature and to formulate clearly in your mind the questions for which you seek guidance. Then let go of the question and any conscious thought and wait patiently. Be relaxed yet observant. And the first living creature that comes your way, allow a message from this creature to help you answer your query. Now this is not a process actually that works so well in central London. (laughs) where a pigeon is nearly always the first (laughs) to arrive on the scene. But elsewhere, particularly around here in Hucklow, it can be an effective way into your unconscious, where answers to our dilemmas may often be found. And who am I anyway to doubt the wisdom of pigeons? Surely one of life's great survivors. So for the pilgrim on a journey, exploring the sacred that links the outer and the inner lands... When the outer landscape serves as a mirror for the inner land, well, there are other things that might be helpful to take along. Now, the staff or walking stick has practical uses, but it may also carry deeper meaning. For the Aborigines of Australia, the carrying of what is known as their world pole, carved in a particular way, means that they carry the centre of their world with them. And within the stick are all the songs and the song lines of their group. Murcia Eliade, who did more than perhaps any other academic to develop religious studies as a discipline separate from theology, he, he, um, in his work The Sacred and the Profane, he, he gathered information from a vast range of cultures and, and worked on the idea that an experience of the sacred Creates a special way of organising life so that life revolves around that which is sacred, be it the Aboriginal World Pole or the medieval cathedral in the middle of the town, or the modern shopping precinct, perhaps. It's an interesting line of inquiry for a 21st century secular world. What now is sacred? What now is holy? And that's a subject for a whole other day. Along with their stick. The traveller may take with them a touchstone, which holds the ability to test the truth of that which is discovered. A traveller in an inner landscape needs to be wise and alert to tricksters. Or they may carry with them a talisman that may hold special power and memories that will be reawakened when touched. I like that transitional object of modern psychology, the child's ragged-eared teddy bear or velveteen rabbit perhaps, that helps us to make that transition from one phase of life to the next. Perhaps our tiny stones today, the fragments of wisdom, can be a talisman for this morning's journey. Linda spoke earlier in the week of stories sometimes offering us a way back to ourselves like Hansel and Gretel's trail of crumbs or Ariadne's thread in the labyrinth beneath her father's castle. Literally sometimes I think we need lifelines to hold on to in the journey of life that guide us onwards when otherwise we might stumble or become lost. I wonder what some of the lifelines have been that have helped you in your journeys and it's at this point that I'm going to invite Vernon to come and speak to us as to today's travel, uh, fellow traveller and uh, I had to check Vernon you are the minister of Dean Row and Hale Chapel in Cheshire and I really appreciate you being here today thank you
3: Can I just reassure you about the phone call I had first, by the way? Um, It was some panicky bride I'm conducting a wedding for on Saturday, (laughs) sitting at at her computer to type out the orders of service for her wedding, and she realised she'd forgotten what it was. So immediately got somebody to phone me here to tell her. So that's all it (laughs) was. I'm making her wait until i My uh, comments this morning are going to be very different from um, those um, excellent uh, talks you've had in the last couple of days um, for various reasons. Um, One of which I wasn't quite sure what the brief was, and I went to bed last night, still not quite sure what I was going to say this morning. But my comments are going to be a lot more personal than the ones you've heard so far. And uh, a little bit revelatory, and so this is a rather kind of a risky exercise for me, um, but I hope it will uh, have some meaning to you. And to lead into those com- comments, I must give you some sort of uh, personal background of my own. I, I come from a little mining village, and I'm the y- youngest of four children, four boys. And when I was only six months old, my father broke his spine in a coal-binding accident and so was um, very severely disabled. And he died when I was 16. But my parents, my mother and my father, if my father had not been disabled, would never have stayed together. Um, they, they did not get on well at all. And uh, my memories of my childhood is of... Um, the daily row, which was fierce and savage and violent, not necessarily physically, but uh, verbally violent. And Sunday lunch times, as always, the, uh, the really mega row. Um, so my, my childhood is, is quite a, a disturbed one, but there were t- a couple of aspects to it which is kind of perhaps gives a, a clue to what I became. Uh, One is the fact that um, my birthday is the 31st of October. Um, Now you think, well, what's so significant about that? Well, from a very young age, my father told me, well, of course, that's Halloween. And if if you're born on uh, Halloween, it means you're not our child. You were brought by the witches, and so you're a witch. Now, um, imagine as a young child the stereotypical idea that we have of which is somebody who's wicked so I was brought up from an early age believing that I was inherently wicked and the the other side of that is um, as I mentioned I'm the youngest of four boys I have no sisters and when I was little my mother used to take me around and introduce me to people say well this is my youngest son do you know I always wanted a girl so I went around believing that um, I was my mother's uh, big regret. So, you know, kind we kind of imagine these sort of things what effect they do have on you when you were when you were a child. Now my father died when I was sixteen. Two years later my mother remarried and we went and lived on the Scarborough by the sea. And um, I did something um, Suggests that I wanted to break away from my childhood, and that is, for one thing, I I used a different name. Um, Vernon's my middle name, and none of my family ever called me Vernon. Uh, They still use my old name, and by doing that, I was going to make it absolutely clear that um, I was now going to be somebody else. And um, my first—you're desperately wondering what my first name is. My first name is Dennis, which, double N, which is spelled backwards, is (laughs) Sind. as is Vernon, is (laughs) (laughs) non-rev. But this whole thing happening in my life, um, something significant also happened when I was about 14, and that is when I first lost touch with reality, I suppose, a way of describing it. Um, Officially, I had something called nervous tension. Now they call it depression, of course, but I didn't see it as that. I mean, people who've had depression will know it's not just a matter of feeling miserable. It's a sort of a total disconnectedness from, from reality. Um, any reality you do witness is seen as if you're looking through frosted glass or looking through a, a window where you can see it, but you're not there. You can't, you can't touch it and feel it. And um, that was the beginning of a long, long period when I was being in and out of, of depression. And I can tell you anything you want to know about Zoloft um, about and Prozac and uh, all the other drugs... I've had numerous forms of therapy: group therapy, individual therapy, psychodynamic therapy, person-centred therapy. I've had them all. I've had them all. And in my twenties, I also went through a period where I actually attempted suicide four times as well. Now, <clears throat> how how does this relate to my spiritual? journey or my, my journey of any kind because it didn't seem like I was on a journey when I was in my twenties. But part of my journey was the, the journey to find meaning, I suppose. Uh, part of that journey was a very simple basic one, finding a way to want to live, I suppose that, you know that was a, a very simple thing. How can I find a way of living and be with myself in such a way? That, um, that I wasn't going to do something and, 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 and take my life. Now, what I did do was um, kind of try to focus on something int- intently. Uh, that seemed to be the way to hang on to something. Uh, now, in my case, that was partly education. Now, I have to tell you here that uh, I left school at 18 with very mediocre A-levels. A university place had been waiting for me, and it was denied me because my A-level results were, were, were just... Put, I mean, I got my A-levels, got three of them, but they weren't very good. But in my 20s, I went to teacher training college and trained to be a teacher, and because um, <laughs> there were no jobs in the 70s for teachers, so I didn't do that for very long. And um, eventually, I, I did a number of things. Yeah, I was an insurance uh, collector. I was... I was an assistant chef in a cafe, chef, ha, beans on toast, and, <laughs> uh, a night porter in a hotel, a waiter, many, many different things, and then um, I began to train train for the ministry, and I studied at Unitarian college, and I, I got my certificate in theology there, but then I really went big time, and um, looking back, I worked out I was a student in higher education for 26 years Um, sorry, 25, sorry sorry to exaggerate 25, (laughs) six years full time and 19 years part time and it was as if there was a kind of a, a compulsion a kind of something driving me I had to prove something to myself Um, People say education can be enjoyable, but a lot of that, it was not enjoyable. It was absolutely bloody hard work, constantly, every day of the week trying to get work done. But somehow it was was some kind of meaning or a road to meaning, uh, a lifeline, if you like, that uh, gave me something to hang on to in the belief that uh, this high level of education would finally deliver this something that would make uh, life a a sense of purpose. And uh, so I did one degree, and, um, hmm, it hasn't happened yet. I don't feel any different. Right, I'll do another one. I didn't uh, didn't do it either, and sort of go up a level, do a higher degree and do a higher degree, and keep on doing that until... Suddenly, I would have been this paradise, you know, of an you know, extremely well educated, wise individual that would suddenly be bathed in the bliss of pure knowledge and wisdom. Um, is, is anybody there yet? Because <laughs> I, uh, I certainly haven't quite found that. Um, so, this is kind of the compulsive thing. In, in later years, I've, I've, I've come to the conclusion perhaps I will find that sense of, of meaning and purpose A, by not looking for it <laughs> and, and B, simply by finding the most appropriate spiritual practice and, and being, being, just simply being open to what the experience may bring. Now, I've not yet sorted out my discipline for spiritual practice. I'm still working on that. And, uh, and you know, you, you, you get a kind of a discipline and then something kind of takes you away from it for a while and then somehow you've got to get back to it. It's very difficult. Like a holiday comes along and you know, three of you in a, in a hotel room for two weeks or so, it's not easy to kind of continue that practice. But I have begun to feel that perhaps... You know, uh, and the appropriate spiritual practice is where that sense of purpose and, and wh- where the lifelines are to be found. Now, some years ago, I, I used to be very friendly with a family whose, whose daughter I used to be a, rather sweet on at one time, a, a Mormon family, actually. And the, the father was um, an absolute really big fella. And um, not very. didn't seem very bright. And I remember having a, a talk with him one day, and um, you know, I were talking about the meaning of life, you know, like, like you do over a cup of tea. Or, you know, what's the meaning of life, Bill? And uh, he said, Well, Vernon. And he, he had no education really at all. Left school at 14. And he said, I think the meaning of life is um, just learning to love. And I said, Well, yeah. Well, that's all well and good. Absolutely wonderful. But, you know, what, do you, how, what does that mean in practical terms? And he said, yeah, well, the first person you've got to learn to love is yourself. And um, I really think that is, a, you know, one of the most profound things I've ever heard, really. It's also the hardest thing I've ever had to learn. How, how do you learn to love yourself? So I've now reached a a stage in life where um, I'm I'm not depressed at the moment, or I might be by uh, break time. (laughs) (laughs) And it does come and go. And, you know, if you'd asked me to... If you asked me sort of this time next year, I might not be in a state where I could actually believe that there was something positive in in, in what I'm saying. But I I do now feel that... um, Things like depression is not something to fight. You can't defeat it. It's kind of an integral part of, well, certainly an integral part of my life. But instead, to try and put into some kind of context uh, that uh, you know, in a sense, befriending it, rather like the Jungian thing of embracing the shadow. So it's, it's an <coughs> inevitable, an integral part of my life. Just as a, you know the moon has a, a white a bright side a sunny side and a dark side you know that's that's just part of me so spiritual practice something I'm working on very very intently at the moment, trying to find a way to to just give in to to accept what I am to uh, to be open to the insights that might come to me in in, in moments of reflection and I suppose simply just to, uh, to learn to, to go with the flow and uh, when times are hard I, I look back to my old friend Bill and his profound wisdom when I was only a young man and maybe that's what life is all about anyway to learn how to love and to, to learn to love yourself so that's my profound journey this morning thanks for the opportunity to share that and I, I hope that gives you some other way of thinking about, about journeying and about lifelines. Thanks, sir. And that
0: really touched me. Thank you very much indeed. Let's just take a moment. very human for us to react. We're reacting creatures, aren't we? And yet sometimes to actually take in somebody's words and accept those first as the gift that they are, it's a valuable first step. Let's just breathe in. All that we've heard, allow it to settle into ourselves. aware perhaps of how Vernon's words have touched something in us, some some resonance, perhaps some experience of our own. That compassion that comes when, when we hear another person share themselves. you now to think of of your own lives and, and some of the challenges that have made you who you are and perhaps some of the lifelines those ways of being, those bits of wisdom those practices perhaps that have helped you through tough times. I invite you to um, find somebody just to to share really just five minutes with the merest little glimpse into one another's challenges or lifelines whatever feels right for you to share and and if you would rather sit quietly um, do feel free to do that as well whatever is right for you find somebody to talk with or let's sit quietly and literally just till you know 5 minutes just just after 5 to 4 minutes to mm-hmm. Painful bits or the numb bits. (laughs) Explore. (laughs) 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 Okay, this journey had better continue. The tea trolley calls. (laughs) Yesterday Rob um, read a quote that stayed with me about the way babies change their worldview so rapidly compared with the paltry few times that an adult will tend to change theirs. I don't actually think this counts as a, a worldview change but there are things that I have said to other people that, um, you know, intending to be um, comforting and helpful which I won't ever say again and I hope people won't say to me. I, you'll know them well. You probably love them. The first is the one about that uh, Chinese ideogram for crisis, also containing the the meaning of opportunity. It's supposed to be cheery and inspiring, isn't it? But, uh, you know, whenever I've been in a real crisis, it's just not what I need to hear. I think it's only afterwards that the opportunity reveals itself to us. The second one is that... Um, Well, we're always given the strength to cope with what life sends (laughs) us. When that, you know, that is patently not true. (laughs) And the third is that one that goes, "Well, what doesn't break us makes us stronger." No, no, it doesn't. It may leave us permanently wounded, instead, far, far from stronger. I think I've come to think that all these sorts of statements reflect the difficulty we human beings have in facing the unbearable the unsolvable, the utter dark despair that life sometimes holds for us. You know those times when someone reaches the end of their tether is, is inconsolable, broken, wounded way beyond the possibility of healing. It's a brave person who can sit with disappointment, loss and bereavement, physical pain, Rage or terror, be it their own or another person's, simply sit and be without trying to solve or soothe or console. To bear witness to the agony of another, or indeed to ourselves, is really hard indeed. Right, okay, that's enough of this morning's rant. I'm turning instead to the world of walking, which is recommended as a spiritual practice by so many spiritual traditions. Solvitur Ambulando wrote Augustine, it is solved by walking. There is something, isn't there, about that gentle rhythm of walking that can be very steadying, I think, for us human beings. But even as I wrote this, I was aware of people who cannot walk for one reason or another, or whose walking is a great challenge to them, either temporarily or permanently in life. And it's these life challenges that I want to consider more deeply, the challenges that might or might not make us stronger. In a room of people like this, I wonder if we were each in turn to list the challenges we faced or are currently facing in life, And the rest of us listened. I wonder how long it would take to tell all those stories. And for me, that's one of the most poignant aspects of being part of a community, carrying in my heart the knowledge of the suffering of others, aware that I probably don't even know the half of it. And yes, there are people in any community whose life paths are easier, and thank goodness for that. (laughs) They may be around to help the rest of us when we're stumbling. In my own life, I faced a major challenge in my mid-twenties when I became seriously ill with rheumatoid arthritis and was told I would end up in a wheelchair. I remember the day vividly when I realised that something was wrong. I was walking to the bus stop in North London on my way to work. Every single step was hurting my really inflamed feet. And I know this is an experience that a number of people here have also had. And I remember all the thoughts of that walk that day. I guess now, looking back, it was the turning point. I was in a job that I thought I would love, and I hated it. I was in a relationship that had started out really well, and I was at a point of thinking, this isn't right. And we just bought a flat together, and every morning when I woke up in it, I thought, I don't like it. For some strange reason, you couldn't open the windows, and it was on the first floor, and I was somebody who liked being out of doors. And the thought that I had in my mid-twenties was, as I put one painful foot in front of another oh, I wonder if this is what adult life is like. You just have to put up with it. And I got ill enough, the crisis got strong enough to stop me in my tracks. Within a few months, literally, of that thought process, I'd actually ended the relationship, sold the flat and left the job and had set off on a whole other path, which took me to the world of how food can change our physical well-being, the importance at times of finding some therapeutic route for for inner exploration. I explored the world of healing, and I started to think, well, who am I, and what do I really want to do in life? What work is right for me? What is my path? And actually the key learning out of all of that for me that's shaped my life ever since was that I needed to inhabit my body fully, to bring my awareness, um, my center of gravity, if you like, out of my head and down to being in, 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 is it incorporated I mean, you know what I mean? Just downwards. I finally understood what concepts such as being centered and grounded actually mean. I learned to pay attention to symptoms as my body's messages to myself, and I learned that breathing is really the key to aliveness. Wilhelm Reich's orgasmic cycle that so excited some of us yesterday <laughs> it, I merely put that in to titillate you all because actually far more important in Reich's work were his work on breathing and character and body armoring. I mean there's so much I really, I could go on forever about this but just the, the I remember one of the examples that I was given in my training because I trained to be a Reichian therapist was they got us to imagine different sort of character types. And one was, imagine what somebody has to do to maintain the stiff upper lip of <laughs> men don't cry. And just, if you just do this in your body now, it's just, you know, there's a tightness around the jaw, the shoulders go up. The, I, I don't know about you, but actually I start to cling on with my toes, and the breathing goes. The breathing becomes incredibly shallow. And you can do this for every character type and sort of body imagery you can possibly imagine. And, and it, every time, it's the breathing that's affected. I couldn't have said it at the time, but it's only many years later as I f- reflect back, I can see that it, this illness brought me to a grinding halt and that was a good thing. I've often thought since... Well, could I have avoided that experience? And my answer is probably not. And why not? Because I was too busy and too committed that I was on, committed to the path that I was on to stop and take stock. On a pilgrimage, I think stopping and taking stock is vital. There are the views to be admired. There are the birds to be listened to. There are bits of clothing to readjust before they get really uncomfy. You could perhaps call these still points. And in the mythic world, as well as the real, these still points are when we pick up hidden clues that will help us move onwards. For pilgrims, that might be the voice of the Spirit of God speaking to us in the still moments. And it's only in the stillness and the silence that we will ever get to hear them. So there are the still points. And it may be that at times a longer stop is required. Perhaps that extra night in a bed and breakfast with a nice warm bath and a comfortable bed is just what is required. And I really don't know if taking the still points and those slightly longer stopovers might help some of us avoid the more crisis laden grinding halts that I know many of us in this room have come to from time to time in life we're almost at the end of today's journey but um, I asked Carol Grace to read um, a poem which I I don't know I just love this poem which is Journey to Ithaca by we can't remember his first name but it's Cavafy his, 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 his surname and then I'll just have a few words at the end of that
4: I know this is a, a Unitarian meeting, but I have a confession to make
1: <laughs> <laughs>
4: um, We were Sarah and I were talking about Ithaca and she sort of, and Sarah said, well could you could you read that?" I said, yes, of course. Um, and then this morning, I realized i didn't know who it was by. And I had a really sort of um, a quandary, because what I'm part of, what I'm doing um, this week is trying. It's a transition um, between something which has given me it has given me an, a, an enormous amount of, of, of huge amount of pleasure, and that sort of thing, but most of all a sense of identity and a sense of worth. And I'm trying, and that has been partly the role of, of being an academic. And of course, you know, as an academic, I had to be able to cite who who wrote this. So I actually don't have a clue about what the first name of uh, <laughs> Gabafy is. <laughs> and that's one of my monsters as well. And this um, also talks about the monsters the Lystragonians and the Cyclops and Poseidon. And it says, don't fear them because you carry them within yourself. And I carry these within myself. I'm not sure that if I, you know, giving up uh, this role that I have, you know, that I'm not going to disappear completely Um, and certainly lose any sense of worth that I have the other thing it's about is expectations um, you know, what do we expect when we get there and I think that's really important as well but the, the poem speaks for itself so this is Ithaca when you set out for Ithaca ask that your way be long full of adventure full of instruction. The Lystragonians and the Cyclops, angry Poseidon, do not fear them. Such as these you will never find as long as your thought is lofty, as long as a rare emotion touch your spirit and your body. The Lystragonians and the Cyclops Angry Poseidon, you will not meet them unless you carry them in your soul, unless your soul raise them up before you. Ask that your way be long and many a summer dawn to enter with what gratitude, what joy ports seen for the first time to stop at the venetian trading centers to buy good merchandise mother of pearl and coral amber and ebony and sensuous perfumes of every kind sensuous perfumes as lavishly as you can to visit many egyptian cities to gather stores of knowledge from the learned. Have Ithaca always in your mind. Your arrival there is what you are destined for. But don't in the least hurry the journey. Better it lasts for years so that when you reach the island you are old rich with all you have gained on the way, not expecting Ithaca to give you wealth. Ithaca gave you a splendid journey. Without her, you would not have set out.
0: So, advice for the long journey... Breathe Share your stories if and when you can Remember that even in the wastelands In that mythic terrain We're not really alone And there possibly is no happy ending This is it Thank you